0: From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., welcome to The Calb Report, In Search of Truth, a conversation about investigative reporting, with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hirsch of The New Yorker and Dana Priest of The Washington Post. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University, in association with the CBS Radio Network. The Kalb Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Now, George Washington University Presidential Fellow and Edward R. Morrow Professor Emeritus at Harvard, Marvin Calb.
1: Hello and welcome to the National Press Club and to another edition of The Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb. Our subject tonight is investigative reporting in the search for truth. Our guests are Dana Priest of The Washington Post, and Seymour Hersh of the New Yorker Magazine. Dana Priest has been with the Washington Post for 22 years, working now as an investigative reporter. Seven of those years, she covered the Pentagon, three years, the investigative beat. Priest covered the invasion of Panama in 1989, Iraq in 1990, the Kosovo War in 1999, and in the last three years, she has won the Pulitzer Prize twice, And just about every other prize as well, especially for two stories. First, the way the CIA operates secret prisons overseas, and second, the shockingly poor treatment of veterans at the Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Our other guest tonight, Seymour Hirsch, wrote his first New Yorker piece in 1971, and since 1993, has been a regular contributor to the New Yorker magazine. He too has won just about every journalism prize there is, including a Pulitzer for international reporting in 1970 for his expose of the My Lai massacre and cover-up during the Vietnam War. In many articles and books over the years, he has broken many stories about President Kennedy, about Henry Kissinger about the CIA, and most recently about the Abu Ghraib prison scandal in Iraq. I think it's fair to say that when the history of investigative reporting is written, these two reporters will have chapters all to themselves. So welcome to you both. Seymour Hersh, you got into this business of investigative reporting during the Vietnam War, long before Dana Priest even was a journalist, And even before Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein broke the Watergate story, you're one of the trailblazers. So first of all, help us understand what is the difference between investigative reporting and reporting? Well, in a pure world, there isn't any. I mean, Every reporter
2: should feel they're they're an investigative reporter and not a sonographer. But the the practical reality is you need time, you need money to go and take a story. What what I see happening often in the press uh, today and always is... I see very wonderful stories that are published that are basically tips. They're just the beginning of something big. So in a daily newspaper, often you don't have the time, as I say, or the resources to do. you can't get free. I have the luxury, and I've had it all my journalistic career, even at the Associated Press, of being able to spend time and take what is a good story and try and make it better. And uh, to me, the critical thing is the commitment of publishers and editors to this kind of work. And uh, I I assure you, there's an awful lot of very, very good reporters that can do it. It's just the paucity is not
1: in the skill of the reporter, it's in It's in the financial resources. Hmm. Dana Priest, in your judgment, what are the special ingredients of investigative reporting?
3: Uh, patience, which yes. is something that's uh, not come easy to me. Uh, I was a beat reporter for many years and sort of lived on the daily uh, coverage. And even when there were scoops, which I took great uh, joy in, in scooping the competition, You know, there was always the other track that was harder to get to and that's the longer term uh, project. And it does, it takes patience, but it also takes listening, something that is in short supply uh, these days when so many of us are on television asked to talk about either our own stories or somebody else's stories. I feel like we gotta go back to that basic because when you listen to somebody, you really listen to somebody, you can learn so much about what they say, about what they don't say, their body language, leads they're giving you that you might not it might not be apparent unless you're really listening to them. So mm-hmm. I, I really have uh, I tell myself all the time when I interview people, okay, just listen. And finally, putting I don't know, I think... I think I have my brain is organized in a certain way where little teeny scraps go into different file cabinets <laughs> almost, and those scraps sit there until other scraps come along and somehow make their way into the same file cabinet, and eventually they become the string for uh, maybe not a whole story, but maybe a paragraph in a story or a trend that will someday become a
1: story. There also that, that quality, isn't there, of expose, you're breaking something big that's going to shock people? Making other people look bad. If you really want to get
2: into it. psychologically, maybe my you know maybe my whole thing is to make others look bad so I look better. Who knows? You know, I don't I, I don't explore it psychologically the desire, but I will tell you, uh, when I first got the Mila story, this incredible story about the mass murder of five hundred or fifty so, sort of people, uh, I, it was some lawyer's office in Salt Lake City. And I'd been critical of the Vietnam War. I'd been reporting on it for the Associated Press and worked for Senator McCarthy in the campaign. It was a speechwriter and press secretary when he ran against Johnson on the war. So I was against the war, but when I first saw the documents that made it clear it was a hell of a story, it wasn't, oh, my God, this is going to hurt the war effort. It was fame, fortune, and glory. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just, you know, that Dana said the notion of scoops. It's, it's, that's also part of it. It's the idea that... You know, you do want a,
1: it's stories.
2: Abe Rose. But the you bottom. want to
1: make you want to make you want to make the government look bad. No, it's just getting a story. Have you ever done a scoop that makes the government look good?
2: <laughs> uh, I would generally say, since I've been a serious reporter, that the presidents of the United States have been much more damaging to national security <laughs> than any of us in the press. <laughs> I would venture that. <laughs> But, but I did work for um, Abe Rosenthal, who you knew, a, a wonderful editor, Abe Rosenthal, who just passed away, who always thought I was much, a little bit too left for him. He used to, but he loved stories. He used to come and pat me in my head. How's my little commie today? What have you got for me? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not, about, it's not about ideology. A story is a story. And if it's true and you can demonstrate it, it's not really about ideology. It's really about the story. And unfortunately, because of the, we've had one bad war after another bad war, and because I think of the lack of leadership and the lack of morality in our leadership, the, the good stories are stories, like Dana's most recent story about Walter Reed, the notion of letting... Here's a president that talks so much about the men and women in, in, in the services and letting that happen, letting that scandal happen right under our noses. And so that's all. That's, it's, it's, it's such a great way to spend a life.
1: <laughs> Danny once said that there are many ways for anybody to get into a career... So how did you get into yours?
3: Um, It took a while. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But I've always been uh, nosy and curious and um, bored easily. So (laughs) when I finally did get into journalism at the old age of 26, which a lot of my colleagues had already been in the uh, career for six years, seven years, um, it just... It just took, uh, and part of it was to constantly uh, never know what you're going to be doing next and to be in worlds that you would never otherwise put yourself in, whether it's uh, covered a coal miner strike in West Virginia and you're down in the coal mine, or I've spent a lot of time with troops and generals overseas uh, watching, actually all male units mainly, the Special Operations Forces, Some the four-star commanders. So that's a world that um, I would never have chosen for my career path, but I also wouldn't ever just find myself there. And, And being able to be in that world and be easily accepted, being able at a point, and I don't mean politically or anything like that, I mean being able to be a fly on the wall. It's one kind of reporting, just... To immerse yourself there, so that they forget about you. In fact, when I was traveling with uh, some of the four-star generals, I did a series on once, which I considered investigated, even even though it's not, um, you know, uncovering hypocrisy, which is my favorite sort of investigation. But it uncovered this powerful, um, the power of the military in a in a time when people weren't really paying attention to that they forgot. They so forgot that I was there that when, and they were all men and they were changing, they had to change from one uniform to the next. Um, and as we were descending, the aide yells out, uniform change, and they all just started stripping because they forgot yeah. I was there and the aide had to grab me and you know, bring me up to the cabin. But I really like that because you, you learn. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'll get you off the hook. <laughs> But what I want to know is how did you get into the position to cover these well, men I was, dressing? <laughs> dressing?
3: I started on the metro staff of the Washington Post. Well, but the St. Petersburg Times. just
1: just applied.
3: I had uh, internships during the summer while I was going to school, and my first internship I had. It was, I'll never forget it. The L.A. Times, and I didn't have much money, and I was down in L.A. visiting my folks, and so I called them up saying, you know, I applied for your internship. Can you look at my resume and can I come for an interview? And he said, well, basically, he said, well, if you can get somebody important to call. And I was so livid, I yelled at him on the phone. And the next day, he called me up and said, you got the job.
1: <laughs> so yelling is an important I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You've also called yourself, quote, an evangelical for the mainstream media. It's a great phrase, but I don't know what it means. <laughs>
3: Well, I think that in this era of proliferating news outlets, that many of the blogs and the internet websites forget where they get a lot of their news to chew over and opine on. It's so much of it is derivative, and if you trace it back, other than sigh, it comes back to the main, by and large, to what the mainstream media has reported. And people don't remember that. So, um, you know, I never thought I would say anything that would... I never thought I would be proud of calling myself mainstream anything. But I am very proud of calling myself a member of the Washington Post, the mainstream media institution, who has the funds and the and the philosophy to let me spend six months with a colleague to find Walter Reed or... Two years, really, the secret prison story took two years in the making, and they didn't push ever for for something other than what I was doing and gave me complete independence.
1: Um, Cy Hirsch, you weren't in Vietnam when you broke one of the biggest stories about the My Lai Massacre, Um, and you started telling us about this a moment ago, but how did you get that story? How did it kind of come together? When did it first enter your brain? Oh, well, I've been
2: reading, obviously. look, you can't write without reading. And right. that's, you know that's one of the great basics. Uh, that's something that you, it should be said more and more. You have to read before you write. But in any case, um, I, I, I was a critic of the war. I covered the war, I covered the war from Washington. I covered the Pentagon for the Associated Press, which is straight and a great place to work, because it's, you really do learn the fund it, fundamentals of being straight. And uh, if you want to say something critical, you can write a piece the next day, you know, after the McNamara News Conference. Um, and so I got a sense of the violence there. I got a sense because those. The violence. That, and uh, the violence. In, in, you no, know, violence. In, in the, uh, one thing about America is it's General Motors goes to war. We, we go to war with our guns uh, blazing. We, you know, we, we, we don't we um, if there's any comment you have to make. Um, about overwhelming force is that often in the kind of wars we're in now in Afghanistan, etc., the kind of force we use uh, sometimes is counterproductive. In other words, I, uh, I would make the argument about Afghanistan that uh, uh, the idea of going after the Taliban was a great idea, but many people, in particularly in the southern part of Afghanistan, are more frightened of us than they are of the Taliban because of the violence. I would make that case. It's a case people in the government have made to me. But to go back to the point... Um, uh, simply put is that uh, somebody walked into, I, w- I, I, I was doing a book on Pentagon procurement for Random House, which is so boring, and somebody walked into my office one day. I had an office in, in this building uh, for 90 bucks a month, <laughs> um, <laughs> way back. And uh, somebody walked in with with just, uh, he'd heard he was a lawyer, and he was a lawyer involved in uh, defending um, uh, uh, G.I.s who were AWOL, who didn't want to fight, resistors, draft resistors, etc. And he'd heard from a group of soldiers about this massacre. The basic facts he had were wrong. He had it as an infantryman killing 75 people somewhere. Every, it was an officer. It was a different base. It was many more people. But from there, you just began to go. And since I'd been in Washington so long, uh, I actually went to the old, very Mendel Rivers. He's now long dead. The former very conservative... Uh, uh, Congressman, Chairman of the Armed Service, House Armed Services Committee from uh, South Carolina. There's no way the Army wouldn't tell him anything bad, and they had told his people about it. So I started with just sort of the obvious, and you pick up pieces, and eventually uh, uh, I got to the, uh, the infamous William Calley, the one who's been sort of, his, his life's been marked as the key person there, the second lieutenant ordered, or first lieutenant ordered much of the killing, Though other officers were there, and I just—you just did what we, what we all do. You just once you get it, you, you get your teeth in it, and you go. And in this case, I was a freelancer, but I had an American Express card. I'd just gotten it the year before. <laughs> I keep on thinking about those ads. You know me. I, with my American Express card, I broke me lie. I didn't think was, they never came. <laughs> they never came to me. But in any case, so I didn't need money. I was freelancing. And, you know, gas, gasoline was four, four gallons for a dollar. Heating oil was 18 cents. My wife was a social worker. We didn't make much money. Uh, we had a child, but you could live on almost nothing. You when come, did you know that you really had a fantastic story? I was in the lawyer, Lieutenant Cowley's lawyer's office. He was a former judge in the Court of Military Appeals in Salt Lake City. And at one point, he was, he was decrying the case to me and decrying the unfairness. And he pulled out a document and he left it on his desk, and, uh, and he just read something from it. And then he and I had a conversation, in which I swear I don't know how I managed to... Con- I kept... I wrote the, copied the document upside down. Uh, you know, little kids can do that. They can read things upside down. When you get older, it's harder. And so I was just word by word, but I was having a conversation with him. I don't know about what. And I copied enough of it to know that there was a formal charge made. And then I went and found Cali. Once, once I knew there was a charge made, I knew I could get to Cali if I could find him. And I found him. It's, It took a day and a half to find him in one base. I
1: went door to door, basically. But I found him, and and then he talked. And so there we go. What's what's interesting to me is that if you had been based in Vietnam, you probably would not have been able to get that story because you would have been focusing on the day's story, the battle, casualties, that sort of thing. So in a way, being away from where the war was actually being fought gave you an opportunity to dig under. And also, you're,
2: you're so right because the other point was it had taken place a year and a half before most soldiers did two-year tours, and they were back home. The perpetrators, by and large, 80 or 90% of them were back home. If they weren't home, they were certainly out of Vietnam at another base you could find them. So it was, it was a, a domestic story, although it's hard so to believe.
1: interesting.
0: Yeah, well, it was just there. You're listening to The Calb Report on the CBS Radio
1: Network. Dan, when you were doing the CIA secret prison story, if I'm not mistaken, the Internet played a very large role in launching your investigation, the way in which one of your reporter friends was actually digging into the Internet and finding addresses and missing names. Oh, okay.
3: Um, The databases (coughs) played a role. You know, this story took two years, and it wasn't that I didn't do any stories on the subject for two years, but during the two years, we started out, um, you know, reporting just teeny corners because we didn't know what we were seeing. The first story was about how special operations troops and the CIA were pulling people out of the battlefield in Afghanistan and bringing them not to the main military prison, but to some place surrounded by concertina wire... And it was their own prison. And that led to the idea that not everyone was being held by the military, that they were being held by the CIA. And then we found out that, that uh, they were treating them in a certain way using stress and duress techniques. So now we know the agency is holding people. They're using stress and duress techniques that the military, you know, was not supposed to be using. It just started begging a lot of questions. Where where are where are the CIA keeping people? I mean, we knew that they were leading the counterterrorism operations. How were they transporting people? And I think what you're referring to is a, um, a suspected terrorist was picked up in an Indonesian airport and an Indonesian paper wrote about it. They didn't know exactly what they were seeing, but they saw a man who was hooded, picked up by Americans in the far corner of an airport. And that report made itself onto the Internet, picked up by uh, some bloggers who call it sounds like Air America is what they said, on a conservative blog. And within maybe 10 minutes, they had taken the tail number from the aircraft and run it through the FAA logs and found that it was linked up to this premier executive service. Now, if that doesn't sound like Air America, I, had gone, I went to um, – but it, it dropped. I mean, no, nothing was made of it, really. And it was only when, when we started looking at this idea and we came across um, some of that reporting, and I went to the Boston, Boston uh, corporate records uh, and dug into this firm – Went through all the microfiche, I mean, I don't know if you've ever done that, but it just gives you, makes you sick to your stomach after a while, because these rolls, and I spent about six hours there and collected paper, Xeroxing them of all the corporate records, ran all the names that were on these records with our researcher through our databases that we can now get, and I'll never forget, she came over, and she wasn't shaking, but she was worried and she said, I can't find any of these people. They don't have addresses. And you know, we 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 wanted to make sure we weren't pushing not pushing some you know key button, but she does this all the time. And in fact, what we had found was, and when she kept searching, all these people were linked to five mailboxes, P.O. boxes in Northern Virginia. And she knew how to look into those P.O. boxes, and we found Lists of 200, 450 names and started running those through, and none of them were real. So at that point, we made a a schema for this (laughs) and we brought it to the agency, or we tried to bring it to the agency. We said, okay, and with sources, now I was using my human sources to say, you know, what am I seeing here? Can you help me piece this world together? And then, like, some stories, you know, nobody in the agency, unless at least in my experience, ever tells you a full story. They tell you a little tiny corner of a story, and that's what was happening. And this, they were pointing me in a certain direction.
1: And give us a sense of the balance between working the internet for information and old fashioned legwork. You've already given us examples. What would the balance have been on this story? Most of it old-fashioned?
3: Oh, uh,
1: 95%.
3: I mean, the Internet was just a way to actually spread the wing number that was published in an obscure foreign paper. So we used that wing number because by that time we knew that it might be important, where the person who originally wrote it was just another description. It wasn't anything to go after.
1: Do you Are you concerned... Um, about the ability of the internet to tell the government, let us say, more than you feel the government ought to know about your reporting. In other words, that you'd be a bit leery of using the various assets of the internet in your own investigation of a story.
3: Well, if you mean to communicate with sources,
1: how do you do that?
3: That would be Just that meet is in the backyard? that is a. Uh, you have to be aware of what you're doing these days and the fingerprints you can leave. Probably more so than in the past, because there are more ways to leave fingerprints that you might not first realize.
1: But why does that concern you?
3: Because the government's launching um, leak investigations these days, and you know, I've been.
1: Have they done an investigation on your stuff?
3: It's hard to know. They certainly called for that. The. <laughs> members of Congress, when the, when the secret prison stories ran that day that they came out, the leaders of the, the Senate and the House, who were Republicans at the time, came out and called for an investigation, but not of the stories and not of the secret prisons. They called for an investigation of the reporting. And, you know, I don't know exactly what happened with that, uh, but uh, that but anyway, is...
1: You're still here with us. No, I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> Cy Hirsch, do you worry about the possibility one day of having to go to jail or protect the source?
2: Um, no.
1: Why not? Because I
2: don't think they'll do it. I think they'll pull back. I think they really won't. I don't think they'll... They do it. being I the government. Uh, yeah, I think, I think ultimately. For one thing, um, um, I, um, uh, I, like Dana, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not worried so much about penetration. I don't know much about the Internet. I, don't, I, I, I write stories on a computer but I don't put notes on it, and I don't put phone numbers on it, I don't have a Walkman, I don't have anything that, and the, I work for, New York is owned by Condé Nass and, and the and the, corp, the young kids in, in the corporate always call me up and say they're reading my email today. You know, I have no, I don't know how to do firewalls. I'm, you know, I'm old, <laughs> and so I'm not into it, and so I know the limitations, but I think most people, um, I don't want to sound Pollyannish or naive, um, but I know people inside the, inside the community that are involved in signals and people that were involved in the stuff that Jim Risen so brilliantly wrote about in the New York Times and the New York Times story about the domestic spying, the, uh, the NSA spying on, on, on the extension of the, of the, of the, of the wiretapping. And the people I know tell me from the very beginning that they were always concerned uh, I'm talking about uh, senior guys in the government who are in are, 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 this is, uh, of course and Dana will say the same thing totally honorable people yes to see I won't tell you very much but that's not necessarily their job and and the people I know said them in the very beginning when this thing this thing began September the 12th 2001 the day after with the first orders and they all assured me that uh, they did everything they could to keep it straight they knew that that the government should have gone to the court and got a FISA warrant, but once they did not, once the story began to get, once they began to accumulate thousands of names, they couldn't go to the court, it was too embarrassing. For the government, the judges would have gone crazy, so they kept it secret. So I just don't think they're—I don't think they're that much Big Brother watching us as much as some people in the press do. Okay. But you still have to be prudent.
3: Well, and Jim Risen is um, facing a grand jury right. yes. subpoena on a different subject. Of the New York
1: right. Times reporter for for he's for a fa-
3: chapter in his book, right? And it was a chapter that the Times did not publish, which. Um, you know, is a very interesting chapter about uh, Iran and...
2: But the beautiful thing, Dana, about it, the thing that's so um, odious for me about it is Jim is being investigated fully for this, as I understand it, and, and I have not talked to him directly about this, he's being investigated fully in a grand jury, I think, really, for something that was not in the New York Times, which means that the right. New York Times may not necessarily be a party to the suit. He may have to avail himself of his own sources, It's not necessarily clear that the New York Times will share the burden of all this, which is also a very very clever way to do it. Go after the one thing in the book that wasn't in the
0: New York
1: Times. I'd like to take um, a moment now just to remind our radio and television audiences that this is the Kalb Report. I'm Marvin Kalb. My guests tonight are Dana Priest of the Washington Post and Seymour Hirsch of the New Yorker, and we're discussing investigative reporting. The two of you deal in secrets all the time. And I'm I'm wondering what guidelines exist in your own mind, because I'm sure each of you does it in you in your own way. What are the guidelines on which secrets can I disclose and which ought I to hold back? then what do you think?
3: Well, first of all. I take all that very seriously, and so do my editors, so that when you're faced with something that sounds newsworthy, like the secret prisons is a good good example, we did not publish the names of the countries involved because um, the government came to us, the president at some point, and you know asked that we not, but that's not good enough. I mean, then made the case, and this is what ruled the day with Len Downey, our executive editor, is that the the two things. One is that those countries might be targeted because the prisons were holding the high-value targets, um, KSM and those sorts. And secondly, that those countries would cease cooperating on other less controversial counterterrorism measures, some of which I was very familiar with. And so, this is, the, but the problem that you're faced with is you still have imperfect knowledge. You still are relying on the government's assessment, and they know much more about what they're talking about, and with partial information. So, in this case, and they won't often give you a lot more information upon which to make your decision. And the Constitution says that we get to make the final decision, that the press Is not censored and prior censorship, and so you know Len Downey got to make that decision. And what we decided was to use um, Eastern Europe and not the particular countries. Why? Because Eastern Europe, coming out of the Cold War experience, was trying to live under the rule of law, something that we as a country are supposed to promote. And yet, our government, the CIA, had made side agreements, not just that were illegal in those countries, but side agreements with the intelligence services that were trying to usurp power from the normal political process ever since they were under Soviet domination. Hmm. So it seemed like a sort of triple whammy on what we're supposed to stand for.
1: That's extremely interesting. Um, Sai, do you think that there are secrets that, shouldn't be reported.
2: It's, I'm a basically, I love, I hate and love editors. Um, I, you know, I basically most editors, I always say, mice training to be rats. That's the way I always look at them. But <laughs> editors sometimes are very important, sometimes. And so usually I throw it at them, this call. This is a government that's amazing in this so way. So you then share all of this Very delicate stuff with your editors. The New Yorker is really interesting this way. You know, they have this fact-checking procedure. I cannot deal with people on the inside, unless they're willing to talk to a fact checker independently of me. And believe it or not, it works because the people—even somebody
1: who's not being identified—absolutely,
2: even an anonymous source. David Remnick, my editor, and my editor, my editors at the magazine, the 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 immediate editors, and the fact checkers—these twenty to thirty-five year old young people who are very competent at just verifying independently what I'm writing. They don't rely on my notes. They rely on direct contact because the stuff is But is there
1: information that you have that you cannot reveal until the person, for example, dies? Then you can reveal it. I mean, Bob Woodward has talked about that. Well, people will give me things. Right.
2: it's shocking some of the stuff I haven't used because, and shocking to me as a journalist that I have, people will give me things in the expectation that they're, they're doing three years, let's say, in Rumsfeld's office, a military officer rotating through, and he's going to be gone in a month, and he'll say, you've got to know what this SOB is doing, right, something like that, and I'll get some paper, and if it's agreed, I'll wait, and then he gets extended. <laughs> <laughs> so and then two more years pass and it isn't so relevant anymore you're on to other things so you know it was a very ephemeral so what business. is your head
1: filled with all of this all this secret stuff
2: um, uh, no but I, I want more <laughs> I'm not near filled but we have this it's their world we, we come in and we're looking at, we're we literally we're, we're grabbing the you know blindfolded the tail of the elephant under, underwater you know we, it's their world they control it and so it's, you know, it's a good day. If I'm at 50, you know, I, I'm not exaggerating. I understand the imperfection of what I write. It's very hard. The best you can do, and that's what makes working at The New Yorker so challenging and so good, because the standards there are so high. In other words, you can't make a quote better because somebody's going to talk to the person who gave you the quote. So you can't, we all like to make quotes better. When I worked for the daily newspapers, it would make, them, make people more articulate, uh, not necessarily changing... The uh, uh, changing the meaning, but making it more, more pretty. And, um, um, and so it's not that things are left in the cutting room floor. It's, it's, it's that there's, uh, there's, there's so much that we don't know that goes on. And once you get an insight and you understand why somebody would leave a hedge fund to come and be a deputy assistant secretary, an assistant secretary. Let's make it better than that. Because he or she is seeing a world that makes him feel so
1: good. But there's another part to this. And if I'm not mistaken, Bob Woodward has said about the weapons of mass destruction story that he had information about it before we went to war in Iraq. And he says now that I wish I had written some of that. And so do I, by the way, wish you'd written some of that. No, but my point is that you, you as a journalist then are holding back because you have secrets and you're the one who's deciding whether the American people should know this or not. Um, um, boy, you, you hit it right. It's very tough because uh, who
2: am I to decide? But you have. Obliga- I didn't want to
1: put it that way. No,
2: but you no, you have obligation. I'm also I also run around telling everybody I'm a Jeffersonian. You know, I believe right. in the First Amendment, and ultimately it is the editor's job to decide whether to publish something, and not the government's. But having said that, uh, you also have a terrible obligation to your sources, and particularly people that are still inside. So you have to, you know, you. And in this town, this is a town. I assure you, if Dana calls up somebody inside. And he doesn't know her. He's going to go to five buddies that he thinks knows her and check her out. That's what they do; they check out people. And if you get known as somebody who throws a source away, um, you're in trouble. You can't. You can't deal. So it's it's a balance. And absolutely, you're absolutely right. I do have information. I wish I could publish, but I can't. But
3: the other thing, you know, it's a very strange feeling. I mean, I want, the covering the CIA for three years was by far the most bizarre experience. I mean it was so challenging and you began I began to have secrets that I wouldn't even go to the editors with because their national security implication was so strong and so clear cut. I mean the clearest one is you know troop movements that's the easy one that people throw out all the time. But then you you realize that you're in this opposite role that you always that you thought you would ever be in which is that you have information that You know, I don't think is is a good idea to publish because it would get people killed or it would undo something that you really didn't want to mess around with.
1: But the point, the point, then, is that. But you can't avoid
3: that if you're going to work in this world. No,
1: I understand that. But if we go back to the six months before the break, uh, before the beginning of the Iraq War. The story was weapons of mass destruction. We were being told that day in and day out by the president, the vice president, the secretary of this, that, and the other. How could that story have got past you people?
3: Well, I don't mean you personally. Yeah, I don't buy the, you know, this is not popular, but I have a lot of criticism of the criticism. Not that we didn't push hard enough, but, you know, there were plenty of people, Walter Pincus, myself, Karen DeYoung, at the Post who were finding out things about inside... Remember, it was all classified. That makes it a little harder to find out. And then it was not like if you went into this drawer, you would see that the government really knew there was nothing. That is not how it worked. You would maybe see that there was doubt, but the, and the doubt could be strong, but it was not a consensus strong. So I don't know what Bob Woodward is talking about. But the fact is, then we wrote these stories, and they got not great play. I'm not sure. We were even generally if, on
1: page 18. They
3: something. were, yeah, they were. Some of them weren't. Some of them were on the front page. But back then, I don't know if they would have made a difference had they all been on the front page. No,
1: but that's not the point. But when we were the, not
3: holding anything back. We were not holding back some secret about WMD. But, but Dana, that we but
2: Dana I, I, since knew. I'm not a member of the mainstream press, let me tell you. I think history is going to be very, very hard collectively in our profession because we really let it down. We let the world down. and I know when I've, since I've spent so many years at the New York Times, well, was, that's an applause line. You have troubles, but, you know, that's, it's a sad, sad commentary. Um, uh, there is a sense, I give a speech and I'm always asked, what happened to my newspaper, the New York Times? Why, why did you? There's a sense in the community, in, the, in, in, this, in this society, our society, that somehow the newspapers did not do their, their job. They, did, they were not on the ball. We, they accepted this president at face value much too much and what he said at face value. And there was stuff empirically. You had to go to the International Atomic Energy Agency in the late 1990s. I, 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 and you had to, if you read some of their in, internal reports that were on, on the webpage, you know, 800 pages, a little small type, you could see it was almost definitive, but you'd have to know where to go um, well, two McClatchy reporters. Oh my God, McClatchy did been some great. very good work. McClatchy has been systematically the best. I'm, with all due respect, the Washington Post, as she said, there's no question she and Walter and Karen did some very good stuff, and it was shunted aside. Now, whether you want to say that or not, I always thought it was, and I thought the same thing happened at the New York Times. There was a lot of jingoism. There was a lot of sense in America. The newspapers wanted to be on the team. Um, uh, I do think that's true of the editors. I just do. I, I, it's not empirical. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, McClatchy, to this day, to this day, does some of the best. I just can't read it. You have to get it online. They have done the best
1: job of any daily newspaper covering the Can, war. You, can Well, help me understand why someone like you um, wasn't in the forefront of the story. Well, Back in 2002. Maybe I missed uh, you, it. I would, I would argue if you
2: read my stories in 2002 and 2003. That it was there? Oh, yeah. I go was ahead. very, very skeptical, very, very skeptical of the intelligence process. I wrote a story very early called Stove Piping about how right. the intelligence right. was being jammed through without being vetted. And I, I was quickly uh, on Chalabi's case. So I, uh, uh, I, you know, I can go to sleep. You country. feel good about I don't it. have to count, you know, little burned and maimed uh, Iraqi children. Uh, but I think a lot of people in this country should be in the leadership.
1: Danny, you said before, earlier in the interview, our discussion, that uh, what you'd really would like to be is a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. That that is the way in which you can really pick up good information, just observe from a distance. But to say the obvious, you are now a very prominent reporter. And when you call somebody, they're going to say, whoops. And a priest is calling now. we got to be a little mm. careful about this all. So are you going to have to change the way in which you go about doing the story?
3: Well, after the notoriety, if you want to call it that charitably, of the secret prison story, I left that general subject for a while and found Walter Reed. So <laughs> the way I operated at Walter Reed was very different than... It wasn't in the government bureaucracy. My colleague Ann Hall and I went up there without um, the government's knowledge and stayed up there for four months without the Army's knowledge. So we did you know, find a way to operate differently, and I hope that that is going to be possible in the future.
1: Yeah, well, I would hope so, too, and I think we we all uh, do. Cy, you did a couple of pieces for the New Yorker on... What you described as a gradual but definite administration build-up toward the possibility of war with Iran. You've, a couple of those pieces have run in the last year. I think I've written nothing but that story. Uh, uh, my friends in the government call me Chicken Little. Chicken so Little. The sky but, is falling. But the president says that the administration is pursuing all of the problems with Iran diplomatically. He's sort of putting aside a military option in his time in office. Do you think he's telling the truth, or would you like to back off the full thrust of his stories? I, I'm writing more about it right now. But the answer is no, he's
2: not telling the truth. Spell that I, out. Empirical. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I think my office might object.
1: It's never been an innocent intent in terms of Iran. Have you ever done a story that you would like to take back? Of course. Which one? Oh, my God. At the New York Times, I wrote, you know, scads of them. I mean,
2: <laughs> we all do. I mean, anybody that thinks I once wrote a story very seriously on page one of the New York Times. I was chasing I was the official cleanup man for Wilbur and Bernstein uh, against my uh, better judgment in the early 03 and early 73. After Wilbur and Bernstein had just killed everybody in the, com- in the community with their reporting, I was asked to look in the Watergate and I eventually got into the story. And at one point. I wrote a piece saying that John Dean, I had sources, the the federal prosecutors were setting me up to provoke Dean. That happens a lot. I had nothing to say. I was one of my patients. And remember Bob Woodward <laughs> calling me the next morning and saying, you, you know, you are such a patsy. And, but but you know something? When it's good, uh, Carl and Bob and I, there was a period there when we were really, uh, it was smoking in, in the spring of 'o three. and every, there was a lot for all of us. And um, it was there was a lot of, it was really so much fun because, it was a period in which the New York Times and Washington Post stopped bitching at each other, and we 're a very bitchy business always, it 's always not invented here, um, you know um, and um, as much as I hated the Vietnam War when I covered it, it for The Associated Press in Washington, if the l a Times had a great story, I was the first guy running in that morning to get the denial. The Pentagon denied to that 's just the way we are you know as much as I instinctively wanted that story and thought it was important you know you always we're so petty. It's sort of amazing. Yeah, but we,
1: Woodward always calls
2: you one of his heroes. Well, I'll tell you something about Bob Woodward. I disagree with him on some of the stuff he wrote about about um, um, the first couple, the first book in particular on this president. But without it, we wouldn't know very much about this president. And I'll tell you something else about Woodward. He's one of the few guys in the world that if he wanted to know who told me something, I would trust him enough. Really? Yeah, he's very – I disagree with him about that book. and I, I'm not saying anything I haven't said to him. But he doesn't get things wrong and that's pretty amazing you know if, whether he's writing about the economy whether you agree with this point of view and, and, and that he gets it right in, in the sense that if somebody says something that's what he reports and it's a pretty interesting track record Though, again I'll say it clearly I wish he hadn't written with that same tone of
0: of applause uh, the, uh, the the first book in particular from the National Press Club in Washington DC this is the Calb report once again Marvin Kalb
1: Dan, I wanted to ask you about what has happened recently in terms of the way major newspapers are covering the administration's position that it's not al-Qaeda in Iraq that is the central issue right now, so much as Iran. Mm -hmm. That is the real problem in Iraq. And I'm wondering if you've entertained the possibility that the administration may simply be taking the media to the cleaners by providing another explanation for a totally unsatisfactory ongoing situation at Iraq.
3: <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, burned, you know, once, uh, I think people are very, <clears throat> very on their toes about that. And, in fact, um, you know, I've heard editors and reporters discussing information that comes from the administration on Iraq's meddling or Iraq's arms shipments. And there's just much more vigilance about multiple sourcing and about Everybody knows this. That's not to say that Iran is not a major player in in Iraq. It's just that we are constantly assessing the sources of the information, probably doing a better job getting non-governmental sources of information, or at least non-U.S. governmental uh, sources, just for that very reason that you're implying.
1: Are you working right now on a big story?
3: I hope so. <laughs>
1: would well, you want to share it with us? No. I asked her the same question. Huh? I asked her the same question <laughs> over dinner. Say, in 2004, when you broke the Abu Ghraib story, the Pentagon spokesman described the article as, quote, the most hysterical piece of journalistic malpractice I have ever observed, unquote. What would you allow, like, to say to the spokesman, <laughs> you know um, <laughs> um, uh, my editor, uh,
2: David Remnick, got letters that we never published to the Everlasting credit of The New Yorker that were really out there, really letters about me and uh, accusing me of uh, of this and that um, really very strange letters uh, uh, in the sense that I think trying to un- the goal maybe was to uh, try and separate me from the from the publishers. Um, um, uh, the thing about Abu Ghraib. That was really amazing. Was I actually did uh, CBS had the photographs, but I actually learned about that story in December of '03. Oh. Uh, and I was in Damascus, and I was I had uh, there was somebody we missed um, we, when we arrested most of the senior intelligence people in, in the Iranian in the Iraqi military, and there was a two star general we missed who some of my people knew. He was a signals officer intelligence, and I I remember. Um, he took a cab from, this is back in those days, you could do it, from, from uh, Baghdad to <clears throat> Damascus. And we, we stayed in a hotel for three or four days talking about everything because he was so eager to get out. Everybody was beginning to get out. It was already turning pretty bad. And he told me one day in the midst of my debriefing, um, he told me that things at this prison were so bad, he said, no, you can never forget this phrase, he said that, um, the, uh, the woman in the prison were writing the, the young woman prisoners were writing letters to their brothers and fathers to come kill them mm-hmm. because they'd been, they'd been violated in the jail by the Americans and by others. Some of them right. um sodomized too. I mean pretty horrible stuff. And, um, um, and there is another level to what happened that um, I, I hinted at. I did a story recently about the general Antonio Taguba who investigated or lost his career mm-hmm. for his integrity. And he, he, uh, we had a line in there that, was, that nobody quite picked up on. He, he talked about it. it was a, there was another level to it. But that isn't the point. The point is so you know something. And, um, and you know and you're able to track it. You know there's somebody looking at it. And, um, and then you hear about the photographs. And it took photographs. There was no way I was going to write that story based on what an Iraqi general told me. You didn't get the photographs. CBS did. Uh, no. I, CBS learned about them first. Um, but they didn 't pull the trigger, and um, I, I then got them
1: was it was it the um, broadcasting of the story by CBS that opened the door for the New Yorker to run the story no, no. the other way
2: absolutely what happened is um, I had the uh, well it 's just a fact so i 'll just tell it um, I had the uh, the photographs and the report and um I'm not being noble, but Mary Mapes was her name, was the producer for CBS 60 Minutes on the show. And I remember calling her one Saturday at home in Texas. She lived in Texas. And I said, they had not run it twice because of intervention from the, uh, the, at one point the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, General Myers, had called directly to, I guess, to Rather, Dan Rather, and said, don't run it. And I told her, um, uh, it's... I, I, I sound self-serving but I did say to her if you don't do it next week you're in trouble because we're going to do it. I said so you have a week do it because I thought it would be you
1: know no, so wait a minute
2: I actually told them over over some protests from people in the, the New Yorker I told them you, I have the story and I have the photographs and so you better not not run it because I always thought if 60 minutes were to run them and then the New Yorker would publish the internal report bam bam you know, the New Yorker publishing some photographs is fine, but the a network publishing those photographs. And then I had the report, which I knew they didn't have. But so I
3: You were waiting for them to publish you before bet, you would publish? You bet. Even though you had the
0: photos. I
2: had the photos, but there were two things going. One, of course, um, um, uh, again, it's self-serving. They had done a lot of work on the story, and it isn't dog, always dog-eat-dog. And uh, just, and the point being, also in my in my own theory about it was, I'm better off with them doing the photographs and getting it going, and then bam, with this report. The report was devastating. Antonio Taguba had been born in the Philippines. He was five foot three or 120 pounds when he joined the military. He made it from a, a, a Filipino second lieutenant out of oh, a States University in Idaho. Made it to two-star general was going to be a three, then they, they say no, say nobody was. He was on track to be mm-hmm. a three,
1: and gave it up for the truth, gave it up. and it so won- I just want to be clear: the American people learned about it first on CBS, from CBS, on sixty
2: minutes. They and had the a Wednesday. Guys sh- sh- they had a Wednesday show, and right. and they had they had actually done an immense amount of work and been stopped. And so the idea, my idea, my thought was that. Um, let them do the photographs i remember talking to my editors about it there was some question about it but it would turn out to be exactly the i mean what a thing to do because then the report comes and then it's just bang bang and then you're not caught up in a debate is it right or is it wrong okay
1: Hmm. danny you've said that the walter reed story this caught my attention got you angry Mm -hmm. and you you felt a visceral strong visceral reaction and you spoke before about hypocrisy and this reeked of government hypocrisy, but in a sense that that's not my image of you. I see you as this very cool, mm-hmm. detached journalist, but you can get emotional about a story.
3: Well, I, you know, that story really got to me from the minute I started interviewing people, and I remember sitting alone with a couple in a restaurant, and they were telling me these things that were just you couldn't fathom that the bureaucracy was being so cruel to them and it was uh, I had to try to fight back tears to ask them questions because like many people that I met on that story they were so struggling with their physical and their mental wounds and you could see that right before their face but then on top of it was this injustice that just seemed it, it was you know to say it crudely too good to check is what we might say, you know, in the newsroom, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't false. It was all true. But I knew that my strength is not in writing about, you know, I, it's not in, the power of that story is in both the emotions in their lives and in the Injustice in the system, and I found Ann Hall, who does write about people's lives. So the combination, which is one I suggest to anybody who wants to do investigative reporting, is both a more, you know, she used to say, you know, you have the hammer. Bring over the hammer when we're trying to write the nut graph that says, you know, puts this all together and puts it in a context. So I looked at the system and how it worked and how it abused people, and she looked at, I mean, we both did both things, but then that was her concentration was the actual how it affected the human lives and the human interaction between the people who were trying to get better. And I really think it's that combination that made it a powerful piece.
1: We've only got um, two minutes left, so I want to just go to my final questions now. And the first is that given all the problems currently facing the business of journalism, do you think 10, 20 years down the road there's going to be investigative reporting? Sorry. Si?
2: Oh, I always think there's going to be investigative reporting. I, I, I'd like to get rid of 70% of the world's editors. That would help a lot. <laughs> because, uh, they, you know, it's. But they a,
1: protect you.
2: The good ones do. The others are always worried about stories. There's always a, a percentage of people in every newsroom who say, why do we want to take a chance on this? There always is. And so. Um, that's very troubling to me. And I, I saw, I worked at the New York Times. There were wonderful editors there who supported it. And there are other ones who just simply thought it was just uh, idiotic to be taking chances. And so you have that. Yes, there'll always be investigative reporting and there'll always be newspapers. I, I don't know why everybody worries about it. We have to figure out what we're doing a little better, but it's not going anyplace. We, they really, what we do, and you know, the thing about the series they did, let me just say this. They got the hell out of the way of the story, which is another important thing to do. You've got to let the story, you get the F out of the way of the story. Let the story tell itself. You don't have to sell it. And
1: then they, they did, did that in that series, and that's why it was got, so effective. As, as we say in this business, you've got 30 seconds. <laughs> what is the principal bit of advice that you'd like to pass on to all of the journalism students?
3: Well, you know, it is to, to go for investigative reporting because all the other stuff, or a lot of it, everyone else is doing it. And so if you're going to differentiate yourself and your newspaper or whatever outlet you're with, it is going to be in the realm of investigations. It's an independent, individualistic, driven type of enterprise. And usually your competition is not going after exactly the same thing.
1: Um, I am really <laughs> sorry that our time is up. I mean, I only <laughs> got to ask about half the questions that I had set aside for you. I want to thank our really wonderful audience, been um, taken with our conversation, and, and our two splendid, splendid journalists. God bless you both. It's absolutely terrific. And finally, to all of you out there in radio and television land, if you care about a free press and a free society, support people like this. I'm Marvin Kalb. Good night and good luck. The CALB Report is directed by Robert
0: Vitarelli. The producers are Heather Date and Tina Creek. Our executive producer is Michael Friedman. Our series is produced by the George Washington University, the National Press Club, and the Joan Shorenstein Center at Harvard University. The CALB Report is underwritten by a grant from the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. For more information about the CALB Report, please visit calb.gwu.edu or call 202-994-8810. This forum was presented before a live audience at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. The Calb Report is produced in association with the CBS Radio Network.